0: is Core Discovery. Hello, welcome to this episode of Core Discovery with me, Abigail Acton. A hundred thousand starlings move in unison against an autumn sky. Not one collides. Fireflies light up a wood in Borneo, flashing in perfect synchronicity. Bacteria communicate around a plant's roots once the population reaches a certain number, while up in the air, the wings of an eastern amber-winged dragonfly have 3,000 sensory neurons, including flow sensors to prevent a stall. What can we learn about these marvels? What can we learn from them? Nature is a source of inspiration for artists and scientists alike. So how are our three guests exploring the fascinating world of bio-inspired innovation? Currently at the Technical University of Darmstadt in Germany, Nico Bruns leads the Sustainable Functional Polymers Research Group. The team is using bio-inspired approaches to design, engineer and realise materials and nanosystems with unprecedented new functions. Nico is particularly interested in the properties of the polymer composites making up plant cuticles. Welcome, Nico.
1: Hello. Thanks a lot, Abigail.
0: Massimo Trotta is based at the Italian National Council for Science in Bari. His research activity has always been connected to photosynthesis. More recently, the environmental applications of photosynthetic organisms have attracted his attention. Massimo is also involved in popularizing science for a non-specialized audience. Massimo, you're in the right place today. Hi.
2: Hi. Nice being here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Lucia Becca is senior researcher at the Italian Institute of Technology in Geneva and the head of the Soft Biorobotics Perception Lab. She is interested in tactile sensing for soft robotics and versatile grasping and is particularly focused on what we can learn from elephant trunks. Hello, Lucia. Hello, Abigail and everyone. Glad to be here. Very glad to have you. Nico, I'm going to turn to you first. Your project, Platmatsu, was interested in identifying materials with novel properties, drawing on plants and the surfaces of petals and leaves. Can you tell us a little bit more about the various characteristics of leaves and petals and why those are of interest?
1: Well, the cuticle of uh, of plants is the outermost layer that is basically sitting on top of the cells of plant leaves and petals. So it's kind of The skin of the plant to the outside. And as our skin, it has a lot of different functions. It regulates uh, water intake and water retention. So it's a a membrane. Uh, Sometimes in some plants, it can even create structural color so that the uh, plants get a certain uh, hue and certain color changes. And uh, or it regulates what can attach to the plant and what not. So if you think of um, either things that should attach, like bees that attach to the petals or things that should not attach, like predators, like small insects that eat up the plants, then, of course, uh, the plants have created surfaces that are so structured that they can stick or maybe fall off.
0: Uh-huh. So there's a, a huge diversity of surfaces that they have, and motivations for, if you can say, motivations or reasons for those surfaces' existence. So, how on earth did you go about replicating these in in the lab? What, what what approach did you have to trying to to develop your own version of these various surfaces? And which ones were you most interested in, actually?
1: So, the way to approach bioinspired materials research is to look at nature and try to identify the the working principles behind these, you know. Mm the functions that nature offers. and then replicate this not necessarily with the same materials and the same uh, same building blocks that nature uses, but you know taking advantage of all the other uh, nice materials that we chemists can produce and uh, and apply. So therefore, you know we, we look at nature, we look at how nature tried to solve some, let's say engineering problems uh, and then engineer our own materials that replicate this. In the European project Plamatsu, we had a couple of super interesting uh, projects. Uh, one was, for example, to replicate the structural color uh, found uh, in plant petals. For um, And as a result, uh, a group in Cambridge created glitter, so things that you can add into, into cosmetics. But it's not based on plastics, but in this case on cellulose. And the color just appears because of the arrangement of the cellulose molecules in these in these flakes
0: and so the arrangement of the cellulose molecules in the flakes replicates or is an echo of the way that the cellulose molecules are are arranged in the in the iridescent plants. Yes, indeed. So you see how the iridescence occurs in the plants, and then you create a mirror or an echo of that. Indeed. Okay, and so obviously that's going to be much more environmentally friendly. But what other attributes does this have? What other uses can these have generally? Not necessarily the iridescence, for example.
1: Another very fascinating example from the research consortium is to look at the structure of the plant leaves, the plant petals, um, and see how insects, uh, so potato beetles, actually can stick on that. So, the, the colleagues did experiments where they put little, a little hair onto a potato beetle and then let it crawl on the surface and measure the forces that these little beetles can, uh, can exert. And then they exchanged the, the real leaves with, uh, with replicas. Uh, first, basically, just kind of a replica molded off a leaf. And then they went on and created artificial surfaces with the same type of wrinkling structures. So, where these beetles again start to slip. The idea being uh, at, at some point to have like a non stick coating that you can basically coat onto, onto plants uh, in order to avoid that these, these beetles or other beetles uh, crawl up uh, the, the plants.
0: Oh, that's absolutely brilliant. And so basically, you're taking a solution that the, that the plant has found in, and actually maybe offering it to other plants as a sort of a, a non-chemical pesticide, basically, a prevention. That's excellent. Super. Yeah. And and um, I think that you were also interested in certain proteins. Can you tell us a little bit about more about the proteins that you were interested in?
1: In my own research group, we are interested in how to combine proteins as Building blocks from nature with synthetic materials, with polymers and plastics, and particularly in this project, we looked at um, a way to coat surfaces that are um, that ha- need to be lubricated. You know, think of uh, of small moving pieces in in let's say a, a mechanical watch or any any type of instrument that has mechanical moving parts, and there you need to have what is called a lifelong lubrication because you're not going to put oil there every every couple of months and then it's gone, yeah, like in your bicycle chain or something. Uh, but these are encapsulated systems with special lubricating liquids. And one task is to keep the liquid at the site where it should remain. And in order to solve that, we turned to, to proteins and to a bio-inspired approach where we basically took... Proteins that like to stick to surfaces and change the the wetting behavior of the surface for these um, lubrication oils, so that the lubrication drop then remains sitting at the defined position,
0: stays in place. That yeah. sounds hugely challenging, and it. I don't know, just from a completely non-expert perspective, it must involve an awful lot of trial and error, but it also sounds like puzzle solving.
1: As, as any science, it's always, yes. you know, it's if you do like to play with things and yes. just try out things, then you're right in, in science.
0: Yes, yes, indeed. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, and so, Nico, just thinking about the future, I mean, not necessarily just your work, but globally, where do you see bio-inspired innovation that draws on plants and the richness that plants can offer? Where do you see that going? What do you think is down the pipeline?
1: Well, one thing that we also as a research team want to address in the future is to see uh, where we can adapt to the adapting parts of the plants. Yeah. So plants do adapt to their environment, but usually really, really slowly. Yeah. They grow. And so this is not fast movement, um, but long lasting kind of slow movement and, and adaption. And this kind of self-adapting uh, materials. Um, there, there exists a lot of concepts already in, in, in the scientific literature, but you can learn a lot from nature, how nature solves this, and for example, adapts the surface while it expands yeah. and while the plant grows, uh, or in response to different levels of humidity on the outside. Or you know plant hairs that uh, that are on the surface and then uh, raise up and lay down, uh, providing a bit of shading, uh, Mm -hmm. adaptable shading. So all these these questions of a more dynamic, if a plant can be dynamic, yeah. That's uh, (laughs) uh, these aspects uh, are questions that that we think have a lot of potential in order to provide technological solutions that might be more environmentally friendly and just produce cool materials that can do, do things.
0: Cool materials are always a good thing to have. I'm <laughs> all about all for producing cool materials. Excellent. Thank you so much, Nico. Does anyone have any questions or observations?
3: Yes, I do have one. This is uh, Lucia and uh, amazing uh, research, uh, Nico, that you are doing. And um, so my question is about you, you're you controlling actually the, the kind of uh, lubricant Uh, and that you can obtain by uh, synthesizing your materials. And uh, do you think this works also on the inverse? I mean, could you also control the lack of of slippery, let's say, condition on a surface? I say this because this would be really amazing interest in robotics in making surfaces that, in grippers, for example, can
0: adapt or not uh, to uh, objects. That's an excellent question, Lucia. That's a really cool question. Yes, Nico.
1: So basically, to create structures that are sticky on demand. Yes.
0: Um, it's a hard question, but... I
1: mean. No, no. <laughs> it's, um, uh, I, I, in, in general, that, that is, of course, possible because uh, as a polymer chemist, we know which uh, which polymers, which macromolecules are sticky macroscopically. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of uh, polymers that where you can actually... Switch behavior depending on temperature, for example, small temperature changes that uh, make a, a gel collapse and then become yeah. completely different. So, um, yeah, in principle, yes, that, that should that should work.
0: It's interesting to see the, the the consider the overlap between between the notion of robotics and and uh, biomimicry when it comes to surfaces, because, of course, with gripping, that's a, that's a central feature. I'm thinking of geckos immediately, but yeah, excellent. Thank you very much for that question, Lucia. I'm just going to turn to Massimo now. Massimo, Haifo, your project, set out to explore the boundary between technology and nature, looking at biohybrid systems based on photosynthetic organisms and smart materials and devices. So, you were looking at the the bridge between what we produce and what nature produces and I think that's really interesting. So can you tell us a little bit more about your fascination with photosynthesis and why you moved away from the idea of trying to mimic it to harnessing it instead?
2: Well, I think the main idea comes from the fact that you do not want to replicate whatever is in nature in your laboratory because the chances that you can replicate billions of years of evolution are very slim. So, if I may say, my fascination comes from scientific literature, meetings, uh, discussion with colleagues, but most of all from beer. <laughs> that's, so that's very important. That's because Bio, you, bio-inspired, in fact. Bios, definitely bio-inspired. <laughs> if you can make uh, yeast to produce almost any color or any taste of beer, why cannot be thinking of harnessing... Uh, photosynthetic systems to give us energy as much as it is to do for beer. So if, if you can beat them, join them. That's my, my way of thinking.
0: That's an excellent principle. So your project, were you, what were you actually setting out to, to look at? What were you considering?
2: We were considering uh, a completely new way of making the um, interaction within a device, whatever kind of device you have, with these biological systems. And the thing is that uh, uh, biological systems are not designed by nature to interact with devices. And this thing is the main drawback when you think of a biological system that has to work for us. So if you want really convince this, well convince it's uh, almost humanized plants, but uh, if you really want to harness this biological system. Then you have to use to be gentle. You have to not um, be dangerous for their surviving. and And this entire system is based on using uh, molecules, namely conductive polymers, to interact with the plants or the algae or the uh, microorganisms uh, in such a way that uh, they will be willing to interact without giving up and uh, moving somewhere else and not on the device we want them to grow or or,
0: or dying even yeah or or even
2: dying yeah
0: so so you use something that is minimally invasive and is made up of polymers so that the the organism in question accepts it and tolerates it more why i mean what are you actually hoping to find out what are you hoping to establish you mentioned for example bacteria i believe there Uh, Mm -hmm. what what are you hoping that, that that will show you
2: well, there are a few things that can be shown. Well, let me say one thing is important. Sides matters here. If you want to interact with a, a tree, uh, then you have to go to micro dimension. If you want to interact with a, a bacteria, you have to go to nano. Of course, the two things are very different. If you want to uh, make a hole through the bark or through the cuticula of any a leaf, then you have to have a a stirred enough system, which though does not um, make any harm to the leaf or to the bark. And you can do that, you can actually do that, but you cannot get electrons out. And electrons are what you need. Uh, Electrons are a way of responding to um, a stimulation, stimuli from external changes. Uh, Once you read electrons, you're fine. And how you do that? Covering your very sturdy material with the polymer that conduct electrons, similarly to how metals do, but um, in a way that is fine for the plant or for the leaf.
0: Right. So you you are conducting your electrons, but what does that do? How does that? What does that show you? Or what do you hope to do? What do you hope to achieve with that conductivity?
2: You know, there there are everything you can get the state of dehydration of the tree, and then answer to that by Um, watering the plant at the right moment, at the right time. Uh, So it can be a very useful uh, task for beating uh, Uh, drought. So it it is a way of optimizing agriculture in a way. Or you can look for a specific response to specific molecules uh, like sugars. Definitely, what is the amount of this sugar? Do we need to shade or have different kind of action from the man who is growing the, the avocado plant or whatever. So, the, the idea is to interact continuously with these kind of systems or on a nano side, uh, to have this connection so well designed that the, the bugs are really willing to give up electrons and they will do the same on a nano scale.
0: So, it's almost as if you can talk to the plant or the animal that you are, you are connecting with.
2: In a way, in a way you are, you might, you may communicate. Electrons are the language, it's not English, <laughs> uh, but uh, that's a fantastic way of saying it. You're communicating via electrons.
0: Lovely. And so what did you find in your project? What did you achieve?
2: Oh, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, at this moment, we were able to uh, obtain the variation for this, for example, Eleni Stavridi and uh, her group in choping in, uh, with the group in Umea, were able to to find a way to detect the amount of glucose and sucrose within the xylem, which is one of these small channels that runs through the plant uh, to conduct water, chemicals, and other stuff. And through that understanding, what is the level of stress? When does glucose or sucrose accumulate during the growth of plant during the day? And eventually, you can... If, if you look at glucose, that's one thing, but if you look at other chemicals like the abscisic acid, you know when the water is too low for the plant and interact. On the other side, in, in the sites. so when you do have to do with bacteria, you can actually understand if your small pond is polluted with, who knows, heavy metals or um, recalcitrant pollutant molecules that do not like to be detected, but you want to detect and eventually destroy. So it's, uh, Nico already mentioned, the dynamic portion of the interaction between plants and uh, External environment, which is a trick to use plants as a new technological platform
0: Uh-huh and I think also one time when we were talking you mentioned the idea of a crosstalk between biological and non-biological matter. I, I really like that 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 concept. Again we're going back to the notion of talk communication, but the biological and non-biological matter, I think that's fascinating the intersection between the two.
2: Yes, it is. It is fascinating because it's a way of understanding a different language. Well, first of all, let me say, biological systems do not like non-biological stuff. So, if you go with a piece of uh, steel and you get it close to to piece of to, to any tree, nothing will happen. If you hit it too hard, something will. Let p- bad Will happen to the tree, but there will be no connection. You have to have a translator between the plant and the non-biological stuff, and this translator is probably the most important piece of the entire HiFi project. What what kind of dictionary do you have in your hands to understand plants and make the piece of steel understand in their language, and that's the conduction through polymers. I have heard Nico talking about polymers. That was a fantastic interaction. Polymers are like pieces of plastic, but these are able to conduct electrons. And so the perfect way of crossing between the two worlds.
0: Yeah, it's like opening up opening up new horizons, really. yeah,
2: Definitely. definitely.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Thank you very much. It sounds very Thank interesting you. research there. So do we have any questions at all for Massimo? Yeah, Nico, would you have a question?
1: Um, you mentioned the conducting polymers, which, of course, are close to my heart and my expertise. But how do you get the plants or the microbes to then communicate electronically with the conducting polymers? Because the conducting polymers can be considered, you know, a, a plastic wire. Yeah. So they conduct mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. electrons once it's in there. But how do you actually bridge this interface between the biological side and then the polymer?
2: Well, the, the, the idea came from Elili Severidou. Again, she was the, uh, the person who thought this. The idea is that polymers are made of monomers. If you give monomers to the plants, exactly as you give green color to the plants on uh, St. Patrick's Day, the plant will turn the color of the uh, of the polymer because the plants will use its redox capability, so the ability of exchanging electrons with the monomer to make the polymer through the veins of the plant. And that was really uh, fascinating seeing that you can actually do it. You give the monomer and the polymer is built within the xylem of the plant and conducts electrons when light is shown on the plant. Similarly, on cyanobacteria and uh, on uh, photosynthetic non-oxygenic bacteria. It's a real twist of the scenario. You don't have to stuff the uh, polymer by pushing it. it. It's just let them do it. So very Italian, let things be done by somebody
0: else. <laughs> <laughs> Let the plant take control. Yes. Let the plant take control. So it absorbs it, does it then, Massimo? It absorbs it in a, in a sort of natural way, like it would absorb other other elements and things around it.
2: Yeah, of course you cannot say it's natural because no, it's you're not introducing natural, it, the green color. No, like, but like. But it's clo- close to that. Yes, yes. And uh, as long as you choose the right molecules, you're harmless to the plant or to the bacteria. But as you were saying, it's a puzzle. Which is the right molecules? The molecules can be fine in its monomeric um, aspect, but may not be as a polymer or vice versa. So it's 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 a puzzle, and you need a lot of trial and error and a lot of PhDs to do the.
0: <laughs> That's always helpful, huh? A lot of PhDs do to do that definitely. to do the, to do the prodding around. Very good. Thank you very much. Okay. Sure. Lucia, would you have any questions? It's really, really, really amazing all
3: the you know so, the plant world. Cool, cool stuff. It huh? is actually being taken also as inspiration by some roboticists to you know build robots that can uh, move, you no, know, like uh, like plants in particular by mm-hmm. Dr. Barbara Mazzolai mm-hmm. of IIT. So she actually is the one who introduced the the plant as a model in robotics to have uh, soft robots that can. Move by growing, uh, so this is a totally new concept. So I think there are there are so many things out there, and uh, people have just you know just it, this is just at the beginning. So it is nice to hear a lot of developments from the material point of view, because that's really the building blocks in order to have these new kinds of soft robotics uh, implementations.
0: Okay, well thank you very much, Matthew. I'm going to turn to Lucia now, Lucia. What does an elephant trunk and a robot have in common? At the moment, that question remains hard to answer, but perhaps your work on the Proboscis project can help us. I'd like to ask you, what is it about elephant trunks that attracted your attention?
3: Well, you know, today, an elephant trunk and a robot do not have anything in common. So this is what we would like to fill in. So this is the gap that we would like to fill in with our project. You know, elephants are really amazing animals. They are intelligent, sensitive, self-aware and their uh, proboscis, or trunk is an organ that has an exceptional agility. And quoting an, an earlier work, it seems like the trunk is an independent uh, organ from the rest of the animal. So it's a very versatile organ. Uh, it can perform a multitude of tasks in different environments. Uh, like dry or wet environments, they can reach a wide space. And in particular, perform both strong and delicate tasks and also very precise because they can grip like single and multiple objects of diverse dimensions, shapes, stiffness, also granular material. So raise hands who knows a gripper, artificial gripper who can do all this today. So, um, you know, the trunk really helps the elephant to explore the world. And it's really a truly universal manipulator, uh, natural manipulator that is based on some very Uh, particular characteristics. First of all, it is a continuum structure. So it doesn't have any joints, no section, doesn't have a distinction between the arm and the gripper. It's soft and is strong. So it is what is called a muscular hydrostat. So it is a structure that consists mainly of
0: muscles with no skeletal support. It is uh, highly perceptive. So yes, it seems absolutely clear that the the elephant trunk is a stunning example of nature working at its uh, at its most diverse best. And I can see the features that would attract you for robotics. But could you explain a little bit more closely how that could be applied to, to robotics practically? So how would you actually go about trying to learn from that and to have a, a mirror of that for your robotic systems?
3: Well, actually, uh, what we are trying to do is that we are trying to um, identify some new design principles for developing uh, uh, robotic manipulators that are uh, guided by touch and that are highly versatile. Okay, so these two aspects, guided by touch and highly versatile, are the the, the major aspects of our work. So regarding versatility, I think I already explained the model. Uh, then, of course, I, I can speak about how to how we approach the artificial part. Regarding the the, the touch, actually, what is really interesting is that the proboscis is uh, really sensitive, but it has a really thick. Uh, rugged skin, okay So we are trying to understand how they manage uh, to be uh, tactile sensitive with this type of skin that no one has studied before. It is a skin which is very wrinkled and has high number of, of folds. Uh, but is clearly, let's say involved, in the sensory motor behavior of the trunk. So the elephant actually, uh, what we know from behavioral studies of scientists studying the behavior of the elephants, is that they're they're starting to see that uh, sight, um, vision is not prioritized in these animals. They navigate the world mainly by other senses, primarily smell, and then also, of course, hear and uh, touch
0: when they interact with the environment. So Lucia, under the Proboscis project then that was supported by the European Union, what is it that you're actually trying to do in the laboratory to to bounce off that idea, to be inspired by the trunk? What are you replicating, if I can use the word replicating?
3: Well, well, the word replicating is not really uh, a good one. Let's say that this project is a very strongly interdisciplinary effort. Because in addition to uh, studying the anatomy and the behavior of the trunk in real experiments with objects, we actually are working at uh, developing new soft robotics tools. What does this mean? In soft robotics, for those who don't know, actually the physical properties and the body of the robot have a role. Like in conventional rigid robotics, they don't have. So uh, it is very important to, uh, let's say, uh, encode intelligence in the morphology and in the materials of the robot. So uh, in particular, in our project, we are uh, working at soft actuation and soft sensing, but also in integrating new control paradigms. Okay, what
0: do you mean by soft actuation?
3: Soft actuation it means that we're not speaking about motors. We're speaking about actuators that are made of soft materials uh, with, uh, for example, mm, driven by a pneumatic source, what they're called pneumatic artificial muscles. So uh, muscles that can uh, exert a force uh, and that can be yeah, uh, guided by uh, their fluidic. Okay, and uh, so uh, this means actually developing designs, uh, architectures of these actuators that can uh, perform in uh, um, let's say movements,
0: okay, smoothly as the muscles. Let's see. Okay. So what's the benefit of that in comparison to a more traditional approach to robotics where one thinks of things that are are quite rigid and and simplistic almost in comparison? What's the what's the actual practical benefit of that kind of approach, the soft robotics approach?
3: Yeah, well, the the main benefit that we want to reach, actually, is actually a fully integrated approach. So we're not talking about a typical engineering, systemic engineering approach in which more components are taken from the shelf and they're integrated. But actually, this integration is from the bottom up. So a material that is also sensitive, for example, to a tactile stimuli, and that is part of the actuator. And the actuator that uh, actually has an architecture that already uh, integrates, uh, let's say, the, um, the intelligence of a, a typical kind of movement. For example, uh, an actuator that not only elongates, but because of its particular shape, it can both elongate and bend okay so uh, this kind of intelligence in the materials and in the architecture of the of the structure is such that can help us to build new machines that are more natural like and in which the control is simplified so uh, imagine actually you know the elephant trunk has more than 100000 muscles right and So it doesn't make sense to mimic each one of these muscles, right? So um, instead... Mimicking an architecture of this muscle, right, uh, in a smart way, so that both the materials and the structure of the whole architecture can encode some movements already, without the need of a specific localized control.
0: Okay, fantastic, uh, thank yeah. you. Great. Okay, so we get the idea. We get a very clear idea of what it is that you have been inspired by and what your team is actually setting out to to achieve. Thank you very much for that, Lucia. Does anyone have any questions for Lucia about her work?
2: Yeah, Massimo. Yes. Uh, thank you, Gia. It's very inspiring. Uh, I might have missed it, but uh, one thing I did not get is how small is small? I mean, what is the lower end of this robotic approach? Can you make them as, or can you think of them to be as smaller as you wish down to a level of the micro size dimension? Or is this something that you want to have it in a handable dimension?
3: You mean in soft robotics in general?
2: Well, no, the trunk specifically.
3: Well, the trunk, we are aiming at uh, dimensions that are not the real ones, but they are maybe, uh, you know, uh, 70%, let's say, more or less. Okay. 70%
0: smaller? No, no, uh, in total. I mean, 30% smaller. Right, there you go. I see what you mean. 70% the size, yeah. So a little bit smaller than a real elephant trunk.
3: Yeah, a little bit smaller. So Massimo's question is really fit because you see there, the bottlenecks, right, that we are having in the technology, mm-hmm. because of course um, the main, let's say, approach that we are using is three D printing, and three D printing uh, actually has a certain volume of development, and uh, uh, so that is why this is a, a strongly interdisciplinary approach where there are people, researchers that are studying new materials and also a company that is studying uh, developing new 3D printers for these materials. It sounds incredibly
0: innovative. Yeah. It's really, it's really at the cutting edge, Lucia. It's yeah. really fascinating. That's fantastic. Well, thank you all very much for your time and thanks so much for explaining your incredibly innovative research.
2: Thanks, Abigail.
0: Thank you, Abigail. Thank you, everyone.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It was fantastic.
0: My very great pleasure. That was great fun. Thanks. Are you interested in what other EU-funded projects are doing to develop innovations that draw from nature? The Cordis website will give you an insight into the results of projects funded by the Horizon 2020 program that are working in this area. The website has articles and interviews that explore the results of research being conducted in a very broad range of domains and subjects, from cannibal pulsars to the personality of shrews. There's something there for you maybe you're involved in a project or would simply like to apply for funding take a look at what others are doing in your domain so come check out the research that's revealing what makes our world tick we're always happy to hear from you drop us a line editorial at cordis.europa.eu until next time